going to be an interesting morning. Anyway, in the spring at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. Reads like a soap opera, doesn't it? In fact, I have this image in my mind of of the camera. Whenever you see a soap opera, before it breaks to the commercial, there's this really long, uncomfortable pause where it's just on the one character, and they're just supposed to stand there frozen. I'm pregnant. I don't know what goes through your head, but that's what goes through mine when I, when I read that. Uh, good to see all of you this morning. I'm so glad that you are here. And before we leave our summer series, I wanted to make sure that we, we dealt with this particular story, the story of David and Bathsheba. And I want to do it for a couple of reasons. Um, one, I think that um, besides the obvious lesson that's here, Um, I think there's some other subtle things that we can learn with this story. And also, I want to point out that within the narrative itself, there's a shift that occurs with this particular story. So you remember, last summer, we talked about um, young David when when he was a, a shepherd and then he was anointed as king and then he's been on the run for a long period of time. We dealt with that issue This summer, we've talked about David as king. Saul dies, and so he becomes king, and there's a whole series of events that occur. So there's two sections of these stories that are going on, but but here in this, this narrative, there is a shift that has occurred again. So one, two, this third one is, instead of the politics of the day, the military Um, exploits of the day. Now, with this particular story, if you read going going forward, now there's a distinct shift that the the author or the narrator of the story is is changing to David's family and and what happens internally. So it's not outward-focused, it's inward-focused. So I want to suggest to you that the storyteller is trying to tell us a story, hence the name, storyteller, right? And here we go. There's been another shift, and this particular little scene um, is, is the beginning of that shift. And I think that's really interesting. We move from this military political to the royal family and all of the craziness that occurs inside. And even though um, David is described as a man after God's own heart, which again is just an idiom that means that he's loyal to God, okay? Just because he's a man after God's own heart, you need to understand that he was an absolutely horrendous husband and father. I mean, really bad. There's some things in here that you just kind of scratch your head and go, oh my gosh. So even though he has that distinction, 
He's really a terrible husband and father. Now, the story of David and Bathsheba actually has three parts in and of itself, and I want to take each one of those components separately over the next couple of weeks. The, the first part is the one that we just read. It's the sin, okay? Let's just be honest. This is a sinful thing that, that occurred. The second part, one we'll deal with next week, is the cover-up, because David tries to cover this up in a multitude of ways, and he just gets himself into more trouble. And then finally, in the third um, I'll call it scene to this particular part of the narrative, there's a confrontation where God's prophet, actually God himself, confronts David with his sin. And I want to take each one of those because I think there's lots of lessons to learn along that way. And so we'll look over each one of them in the story of David and Bathsheba. And so we just read through the passage. I want to now pick it apart a little bit. And then when we're done, I'm going to offer a thought. Okay, so let's, <clears throat> let's go back into the text. Here we go. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. Now, this is an interesting distinction because David's uh, with the king's men, so his men, um, there's an, another uh, section here that'll occur towards the end of 2 Samuel where it talks about David's mighty men. That's who he's talking about. It's kind of like his personal bodyguard would be the best way of understanding it. But these are men of great renown and um, pretty significant exploits. And the whole Israelite army. So, I mean, he sends everybody out. Uh, they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, which was the capital, as I understand it. But David remained in Jerusalem. So we have this little setup to the story in verse 1. Now, what's interesting here is it says, and I think this is quite funny, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, it's just kind of this casual sort of thing, like, well, everybody does it, right? Everybody goes off to war in the springtime, because, you know, spring is busting out all over. Oh, wait, that's the wrong musical. Got to move on. So here we have this simple little phrase. And you need to understand something, that in that part of the world, which is a very arid climate, you get rain in the wintertime. Here in Oklahoma, we get rain in the springtime, in the fall, just not in the summertime, apparently. <laughs> so, although this summer wasn't too bad. But in the spring, you have rains, and it's really difficult to move armies when everything is muddy and water is flowing. You just need to understand that. So, uh, sorry, in the wintertime, you wouldn't do this. So spring, things begin to dry out, at least in this part of the world, so you could start moving your, your armies. The other thing is you can't really do it in the fall because that's harvest time, and you need all that labor uh, to um, um, not only plant the fields in the summer and whatnot, but also to harvest in the fall. So really, kind of spring and into the early summers of the time that you would typically go off to work, because what else are you going to do with a bunch of men? Right? they got to have something to do, so let's go pick on somebody. I don't know. But it's this kind of funny phrase, and it was like in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, and the, the original readers would have looked at it and go, no, yeah, that makes sense. Makes sense to me. Okay? So here we have this uh, very common occurrence. So we occupy them with war um, in, the, in the spring. One evening, David got up from his bed. Now remember, he sent everybody off. He's by himself. He got up from his bed and walked around the roof of the palace. <clears throat> from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. Okay, let's talk about this a little bit. Because it seems, it seems innocent enough, and I'm just walking around the roof. Hmm. 
couple of problems here, things that we need to understand. First and foremost, Jerusalem at the time, at least around the king's palace, was estimated to be only 10 acres. That's not huge. And the residents, at least those that surrounded the king's palace, uh, or those that would have been in eyeshot of the palace, belonged to members of the court. It was highly likely that David knew exactly whose house he was looking at. It's not a big field, right? And he knows everybody that, he knows all his neighbors, let's just put it that way, okay? It's a little odd here. It's problematic. Um, and by the way, it is, it is for sure that Bathsheba was not bathing in public. But my guess is, at least from what I can, I can gather here, his rooftop provided some type of vantage point, and he at least knew what she was doing. So, you know, don't get the impression that this was kind of a common thing that, you know, or yeah, she was, you know, deliberately trying to get his attention. There's nothing like that going on. He understood what was happening. The second problem here, with it being this innocent sort of idea, is that he sent someone to find out about her. And I have to admit, I do not like this translation at all. I don't, I don't like how this is translated. The word, which is uh, uh, darash, um, has a connotation to actually go and seek out, to, to actually find something, something out. So please understand, this is not a casual inquiry. One scholar put it this way, the way the word and the sentence is structured is that this wasn't just a casual uh, inquiry, this was a requisition. Go get her. So, does it seem innocent? Maybe, but as you begin to dig a little bit deeper, not so much. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, in other parts of the story, we learn that Eliam is actually the son of one of David's mighty men. So Bathsheba's grandfather is one of David's closest associates. And so is Uriah the Hittite. He's mentioned elsewhere. So not only is she a family member of someone who has devoted himself to the king, to the monarch, but also her husband, both of them. That adds a little wrinkle to this, doesn't it? It's not just Uriah some guy. Uriah the Hittite, who is numbered among David's mighty men, and the granddaughter of another one of David's mighty men. Fascinating. This is just all kinds of problems. So the fighters that he relied on the most, legendary exploits, commanders in his army, that's who these individuals are. And what happens next is betrayal of the absolute highest sort, at least it is in my mind. Then David sent messengers to get her, see, follows. She came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly un uncleanness. Uh, then she went back home. <sighs> just so much in this verse, just so much. 
the detail about her monthly cycle is to make sure that the reader understands there is no doubt about who the parent of this child is that we're going to read about here shortly. And I, what, okay, I, I have to admit this. The text is absolutely silent on Bathsheba's willingness in this whole thing. And, and I got to tell you, I, that bothers me a lot. I, I don't, it was, it's always been troubling to me. The fact that we have no idea if Bathsheba was a willing participant all in, in all of this or not. On the one hand, there are other places in the Bible where it talks about um, an inappropriate relationship and the woman protesting. Okay? And there are other stories that she doesn't protest an inappropriate relationship like this. So this is very troubling in the fact that the, the scripture is silent. You can't make an argument from silence. So it's, it's, it's a problem. At least it is for me. Like, I don't really understand her compliance, her willingness in the whole affair. Quite literally. But at the same time, regardless of the silence, it is really hard to see this as anything but an absolute abuse of power. Both her husband and her grandfather are warriors in his army. He is the king. Regardless if she is willing or not, the very fact that he proposes this is an abuse of power. I don't know how you get around that. And I suspect, to a certain extent, the reason why it's silent is to point that out. Then in verse 5, the woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. This is that soap opera moment. It's very matter of fact, isn't it? I mean, there's, there's not a whole lot of emotion here. At least not in the storytelling part. I'm guessing they had plenty of emotions. But it's very matter of fact. And by the way, <clears throat> the thing to remember is that the fact that she's um, pregnant it doesn't necessarily complicate questions of succession, per se. Now, very often, uh, when we read in sort of, I would call it more modern monarchs, what we would understand in, like, say, European monarchies, there's always the, the, the notion of uh, a child conceived out of wedlock or out of an affair as somehow complicating the succession of the next king. Does this make sense? Because they typically flow through bloodlines. Um, but here's the problem. David um, had multiple wives and multiple concubines. Multiples. So marriages for political reasons, best way to describe it. And so the king could name whomever he wished to be his successor, and, and he does, actually. He does not choose his eldest son, which also gets him into some trouble. So later on down the road, um, we may read about that. But it's not the eldest. The other thing is, you have to remember that most Hebrews practiced uh, monogamy, and it appears to be the case in Bathsheba's family that they did. And so the king then is the exception to the typical practice of, of giving the eldest son um, kind of the, the preference for things. So oftentimes you'll read in the, in the Old Testament, you'll read about how the eldest son receives a double portion 
of the inheritance. And the whole purpose behind that is, as the eldest son, he becomes the patriarch of the family, and so he has to take care of everybody else, so he deserves a double portion. But when you're the monarch, and you have all these you know, political marriages, and you have multiple kids from those political marriages, it's a little bit different, and so you're kind of the exception to the rule. Does this make sense? So there's some cultural things that are going on here that we have to understand. Because a lot of people will read this and they'll say, oh my gosh, now we've got another potential heir to the throne that's going to come. Nope, doesn't do any of that. This is strictly a moral problem. The king did something he wasn't supposed to. And now we have a consequence. So we need to frame it that way in order to understand this, I think, I think properly. So obviously, um, David's, <laughs> David was looking where he shouldn't have been, okay? Let's just, let's just state that out, out, out loud. He was looking at some things that he wasn't, or he watched maybe a little too long. I think with the rise of the internet, most of us can relate in some way, shape, or form. David also ignored what he knew of his neighbor's homes. He ignored it. And he might have avoided trouble if he left her alone. But no, the text is very clear. He sought her out. This is a deliberate requisition. It seems like the best way to describe this is that David made a series of very foolish decisions, one right after another. But I want to suggest to you that there was one choice that set him up for the failure, one choice in particular. And I think we can learn from it. But David remained in Jerusalem. That's the decision right there. David remained in Jerusalem. The entire army set out, he remained. The warrior king who lived and camped in an oasis as he was running from Saul in hidden caves, the man of the sheep and the battlefield, stayed home. And he sent his troops and his friends off to war. And I think there are two ideas worth exploring a little bit. So bear with me here. A couple ideas. Here's the first one. He was cut off from his support. I highly doubt that any of those that he would call his mighty men um, would have not intervened, especially when the woman was related to some of them. Does this make sense? He's cut off from any type of support. And he's left to make decisions on his own, emotional decisions. I have to believe that some of the people around him probably would have said something to the effect of, what are you doing? I don't know about you, but I have some friends who have that kind of permission in my life. And every now and then, I'll say something, and they're like, whoa, wait a minute. What are you talking about? I think that's important to have those kinds of people. Don't underestimate both the power and the protection of community. Having some people around you is a really good idea. Now look, here's the thing. 
and I, and I want to, I, I should point this out. Not everybody has the same permission in your life, okay? Depending on the relationship that you have with them, not everybody has the same amount of permission. So I've said this before, I have two people in my life that have absolute carte blanche permission in my life. One is my wife, period. She can say to me whatever she wants without any type of you know, repercussions or any of it. I listen to her because I stood before God, her parents and my parents and a whole bunch of friends and I said, I do. And so that automatically gives her permission. The other one is I have a best friend. Um, I talk about him from time to time. His name is Byron. He has carte blanche permission to speak to me about anything because I got a lot of time and I have a lot of commitment in with that particular individual. There is nobody else on the face of the planet that has that level of permission in my life. Nobody, nobody. My board of directors have a certain amount of permission in my life, especially as it relates to Thrive Church, right? I have friends with different levels of permission that they're able to speak into those things. That's called permission. But the point is, is that even when you know somebody casually and they're an outsider looking in and they're not necessarily trapped in the same type of environment that you are, they can offer you a perspective and sometimes that's just enough to keep you out of trouble. Okay? Let's just say that. So even though they don't have the permission, they're still sometimes, it, it's, it's beneficial when somebody kind of looks at you with that funny, you know, my grandma would have called it cockeyed. What? What are you talking about? And it kind of breaks that, that moment where you're, you realize, oh, maybe this isn't a good idea, okay? Community is a big deal. There's a, there's a reason why God didn't give one person all of the gifts because we can't do this life on our own. No, we're not meant to. We're supposed to do this, this whole thing together. So there's a certain amount of power in community, but there's also um, some protection. And that's why, you know, at Thrive Church, we, we talk about this quite a bit, is that we want you to be intentional. We want you to be serious about connecting with other people. Yes, you want to connect with God. Absolutely. I want you to have that daily encounter, but you are not meant to do this life alone. That is, that is part of the American story, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, that's not necessarily biblical. Now, I'm a big fan of you taking responsibility for your life and pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, but please do understand that the biblical idea is, is that we're in this together. And we need to lean into that. Does that make sense? Nod your head so I know you're paying attention. Okay, good, thanks. That's awesome. Here's the second thing, <clears throat> and this is the one I think really makes a big difference. He broke the routine. <clears throat> David broke the routine because kings go off to war. Not armies, kings. Kings go off to war in the spring. That's what they do. But David decided to stay put. Now, psychology will often talk about the benefit or the importance of having a routine, especially for the morning and the evening, um, because it affects productivity. And there's tons of research on this, lots of literature. I talk about having some type of morning routine, some type of bedtime routine that actually tells your body it's time to get up and get moving and it's time to, time to go to bed and go to sleep. Um, it's a healthy thing to have certain routines. I mean, even on a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly um, kind of basis. Um, and your brain actually looks for routines. There's a part of your brain that likes to not think about things for very long 
and wants to make it into some type of a, a routine. And, and, and I, I can prove this. How many of you have gotten into your car at work, pulled into your driveway, and have no idea how you got there? That's a routine. Your brain just goes on autopilot. It happens. We all do this. <clears throat> Whether it's a store you go to a lot, typically it's work, but you're going back and forth. The next thing you know, you're in the driveway, and you're like, whoa. Did I even stop at a stoplight? <laughs> Hopefully you did. <clears throat> Furthermore, when you break the routine, you become vulnerable. Um, vulnerability happens during tra- transition. Remember, back in Second uh, Samuel chapter, uh, I think it was chapter 5, um, when the Philistines came to look for David, it was during the transition. Transitions make us vulnerable, almost always. <clears throat> and a little more close to home, um, among missionaries, it is well known that between 18 and 30 months, there is this moment where missionaries quite literally look at each other, look at you know, husband and wife typically, and go, what are we doing? It's called culture shock. Now, we think culture shock is when you first move somewhere. Mm-mm. Culture shock is what always happens later on after you've gotten the lay of the land. There is this moment or series of moments where you go, oh my goodness, what, what have we done here? And you feel like it's spiritual crisis. It's not. You're just in transition. The same thing happens when you start a new job. Typically within about 18 to 30 months, so about two years, there is this time where you're like, why did I even decide to do this? I remember when when Lisa and I moved here now, well, 10 years ago, um, about the two-year mark, there was a moment where like, what did we do (laughs) moving to Oklahoma? I mean, it was, and I remember Lisa saying, hey, just remember we're in transition here. Oh yeah, that's right. This is a common phenomenon, something that's well documented. You've already developed the new routines that you have, but then you begin to realize the environment that you're actually in. Um, the other way to, to describe this um, idea of vulnerability is, let, let's say you start like a, a new exercise program, right? And you're exercising, uh, let's say you do it every day, um, because that's, it's easier to actually develop a routine when you're doing it every single day. But you're going through this, and, and then you might have some kind of an injury. It might be a small injury, but it's enough to kind of disrupt your, your workout. And then it's easy to what? Fall out of habit, Right? I mean, this, this happens uh, quite a bit. Or maybe um, you just started a new diet um, where you're just kind of watching your carbs or you're doing keto or whatever it happens to be, and then you go on vacation. All of a sudden, that wagon you fell off of is way down the road, right? And it's a little harder when you get back from vacation to get back on that wagon. And we've, we've all experienced this. So do you understand what I'm saying is that when you break the routine, you tip, typically are a little more vulnerable. Anytime you disrupt those routines, you have some, some, uh, some vulnerability. At least that's been the experience of myself and probably a lot of you as well. And so what we have here is that here's David who is flush off of uh, a series of victories. And if you want to read about him, it's 2 Samuel chapter 10. He, he's, I mean, he, I mean, he's on a roll at this point. I mean, the things that he's doing, I mean, he is, he is winning battles, and he's already won the hearts and minds of his people. There's a certain level of prosperity that's taking place. And, and so here he is. He's going to take the easy way. 
Um, or maybe he acts without some integrity and one thing leads to another and another and another, right? Because he disrupted the routine. Because in spring, kings go off to war. Also note that he never inquires of the Lord here. There's not a moment where he says, shall I go and attack the Ammonites? Shall I go with them? He doesn't ask that question. He doesn't make the inquiry, nor does he make any request of the Lord here. He's strictly doing this on his own. I think the idea is that he felt rather secure now. I mean, he's, he's really accomplished everything that God, you know, had told him to do. He'd become king, and now he's, he's just kind of, you know, into the, the particular role, and he's secure, and yep, even David, the man after God's own heart, doesn't get it right all the time. Clearly the case. So what are we to make of this, right? And we're talking about things like, you know, support and routines and all of that. I think there's some, some obvious lessons here. <clears throat> it strikes me that we need to have the routine of community. And I think we need to have a routine, some way, shape, or form, of connecting with God himself. I mean, we're Christians, right? I mean, the word Christian means little Christ. So if you're going to be a little Christ, wouldn't it make sense to check in with him at least periodically to find out kind of what he has in mind for you? Right? Now, I don't I want to say that to, to bludgeon anybody or make anybody feel bad. I understand life is busy and, and you know, things are, things are weird right now. They just are. You can see it every time you open your news feed and just conversations in restaurants and coffee shops. And I, I mean, and is it just me or when I'm in line, it just seems like the customers treating the employees is just awful. I don't, I don't get that. It's like somehow we've gone from bad to worse. Um, I just, yeah, it's very odd to me. I don't remember it being quite like this before. And so I, I really feel like with the way the environment is today and just kind of what we're facing as a, as a people, that we need to put some things into place just to be healthy. And obviously having the routine of checking in with God daily is probably a good way to start. But also is to have the routine of some type of community in your life where it's not just you trying to do it by yourself. That you're actually connected to other people who are trying to chase after God the same way you're trying to chase after God. That's one of the reasons why we talk about things like small groups around here. Now I understand the life and schedules and whatnot sometimes prevent all of that, but the but the real issue is here, if you're not going to do it through a small group, how are you going to do it? Does this make sense? The, the point is not that you do it our way, but that you just do it, that you're somehow engaged in some type of a community where you're not trying to do this thing on your own. I think that's a really important thing to remember. And so my challenge for you today is to, to be serious about it and just check in with God and say, hey God, what, what do you want to do here? 
where am I vulnerable? I don't want to be vulnerable. I don't want to make that mistake. I don't want the soap opera moment, right? Where the camera is on me for an uncomfortable period of time. But rather, I want to live victorious and I want to live in a way where we're overcoming the obstacles because you're involved. And Lord, who do I need around me? And who do I need to be, for, be there for? Because it really goes both ways. It's not just that my wife has permission, but my wife has given me permission. And so we share that responsibility for each other. And so when you're in a community of people, you are responsible for one another. And I think that's the way God intended it. Sometimes you have to give. Sometimes you have to take there's an ebb and flow to all of it that is truly holy. So I don't know where you are with those things. I don't know how um, those ideas will impact you. I just want you to take a moment and check in with God and just say, Lord, what do you have in mind here? What's going to be healthy for me so that I don't end up with a soap opera moment? Let's pray. Hey, God, Thank you for these stories about people who are not so different from us. And yeah, they, they lived a long time ago. And their circumstances and their culture are very different from ours. And yet, they still have a very human condition, just like us. And Lord, I pray that we would be able to learn from them. Lord, I pray that every person seated here or those who are watching online would feel your spirit stirring them um, in some way. Maybe there's an issue. Maybe there is something, a hurt, a habit they need to break, some kind of hang-up that they have that you're kind of poking and prodding them about. God, for that person, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to them in the way that they, they need, not under condemnation because there is no condemnation in Christ, but Lord, under conviction that there is a better way for them to live. Shame, you have no business here. Be quiet. Be silent. In the name of Jesus. Holy Spirit, speak to that individual who may have that vulnerability that they don't know. And God, I also pray that you would turn our hearts towards each other, that we would truly begin to understand community and not just the power of it, but the protection of it because we need each other. We need each other to be in community with one another. Help keep us out of trouble to be cared for, and to be encouraged. And I pray, Lord, that we would take that responsibility for care and encouragement very seriously about other people as we see them, we see that they might need some care or they might need some encouragement because everybody we meet is fighting a, a battle of some type. Help us to see things in that light. Help us to see each other the way you see us. God, um, protect us 
from ourselves and our foolish decisions um, so that we can live in a victorious way. In Jesus' name.